0: Good morning. Let's look to it. It's in Ephesians 5, beginning with verse 15. The apostle writes here, he says, So so then be very careful how you live. Don't live like foolish people, but like wise people. Make the most of your opportunities, because these are evil days. So don't be foolish, but understand what the Lord wants. Don't get drunk on wine, which leads to wild living. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. By reciting psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs for your own good, sing and make music to the Lord with your hearts. Always thank God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Place yourself under each other's authority out of respect for Christ. Wives, place yourself under your husband's authority as we have placed ourselves or yourself under the Lord's authority. The husband is the head of his wife, as Christ is the head of the church. It is his body, and he is the Savior. As the church is under Christ's authority, so wives are under their husbands' authority in everything. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave his life for it. He did this to make the church holy by cleansing it, washing it, using water along with spoken words. Then he could present it to himself as a glorious church without any kind of stain or wrinkles, holy and without fault. So husbands must love their wives as they love their own body. A man who loves his wife loves himself. No one ever hated his own body. Instead, he feeds and takes care of it as Christ takes care of the church. We are part of his body. That's why a man will leave his father and mother be reunited with his, crop, with his wife, and the two will be one. This is a great mystery. I'm talking about Christ's relationship to the church. But every husband must love his wife as he loves himself, and wives should respect their husbands.
1: If you would, turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5. Once again, Ephesians chapter 5, and believe it or not, we... We'll finish the chapter of Ephesians 5, 5, looking at verse 33 today. But guys, don't breathe too easily. We still have at least another message for you, as I'll tell you here in a second. So... We're going to talk, talk today about Ephesians chapter 5, thir- verse 33. And just as a, a reminder that Kevin talked about a little bit this morning in, at the end of Sunday school, for the next couple of weeks what's going to be happening is next week Kevin's going to be preaching and he's going to continue the study that he's doing in uh, Sunday school on angelology and they're talking about the spirit of Jezebel, I believe, right? And uh, so Ahab and Jezebel, just really wonderful, delightful couple, right? And <laughs> model, model of... Uh, husband and wife right yeah yeah and so we so he'll be looking at that and and I will be teaching Sunday school at that point and or that day and what I want to do is I talked uh, a couple weeks ago about the oneness between Christ and his church and I gave some material a little bit of Uh, give you some ideas from Christ's side of that oneness, but not so much from the the church's side. So what I would like you all to do, if you're going to be in adult Sunday school, is be thinking about that this week. How is it that the church, what is it that we do as part of our oneness with Christ and between Christ and His church, just as husbands and wives both have a part in their oneness in marriage, so to Jesus and his church both have a part in that. So be thinking about that. And we can also talk about uh, oneness between husbands and wives, if if you'd like, as well. But I've been thinking through that, and and so we'll kind of have a little bit of brainstorming, discussion, that sort of thing. So it'll be a little bit different. But I wanted to explore that a bit further uh, with you all. So uh, we'll talk about that. And then in uh, two Sundays, December 3rd, uh, that's where, guys, I was warning you, we'll be talking about 1 Peter 3, verse 7. So it's one I didn't want to miss a passage because it's really important for for guys. And it's you know if you thought this was convicting you know wait till First Peter three seven and I know it would be all women here that day right. So <clears throat> but very helpful material uh, for for husbands in how we are to love our wives. So uh, we're going to touch on that chapter a little bit this morning, <clears throat> but more as it has to do with wives. And then we'll come back December 3rd and talk about it in relation to husbands. So, Ephesians 5.33, expectation or responsibility. And that's a choice, okay? Which is it? Expectation or responsibility. If you've been married, if you are married, or if you hope to be married, have you ever thought this? If only my spouse would fill in the blank, then I could be happy. Now, we all tend to think that way even outside of thinking about marriage. We sometimes will think that way about our spouse, but maybe if my parent would only fill in the blank, then I could be happy. Or my child, if my child would do this. Or my friends, my church, Or my church friends. If only they would, I would be happy. One problem with that is that we think if the circumstances are right, then I'll be happy. And then I can obey God. You see the order? That's the way we think humanly from our fallen perspective. If my circumstances are right, then I can be happy, and then I can do my part. I can obey, but that's backwards. Because what we find the Bible teaching, for example, Jesus said in John thirteen seventeen, if you know these things, what He's been teaching them there. If you know these things, you are blessed. If what some of you know it, if you do them, you're blessed. If you do them, what what do we call that? Obedience, right? John, who recorded those words of Jesus, wrote in the revelation of Jesus Christ, chapter 1, verse 3, he said, Blessed are those, and then blessed the, the, the idea of happiness and fulfillment, blessed are those who read and hear, and guess what? He do. What follows? So, obedience actually precedes happiness. And happiness is something important we should talk about. Sometimes we, because we think in terms of the Lord, or the world's happiness, and so we tend to put down happiness, but we don't mean that. We're talking about happiness from a biblical perspective. Think, you know, Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes, uh, blessed are happy, fulfilled are those who. But obedience precedes happiness. James explains that the one who obeys, God's laws, in other words, a doer and not a hearer only. He says, this man shall be blessed, guess what? In what he does. He'll be blessed in his obedience. He'll be happy in his obedience. Another problem with thinking that way where we, we have backwards, that circumstances have to be right, Then I'll be happy. Then I can obey. Another problem with it is that we think that our happiness depends on the performance of other people. We think our happiness depends on the performance of other people. Go back to that. If only my spouse, friend, would do blank, then I'll be happy. You see what you're doing there? Is your... Giving them the key to your happiness. They have the key. And you become their slave. Because you're saying that I can't be happy unless they do X, Y, and Z. Right? So you're a slave to their happiness. Or to, to their performance. But the Bible teaches that we are happy when we obey, or the happiness will come when we obey. So find happiness and fulfillment in faithful obedience. Find happiness and fulfillment in faithful obedience. And so as we apply this all to marriage, we'll see here in Ephesians 5.33 that every married Christian is responsible... For serving their spouse, and the key word responsible there. They're responsible for serving their spouse in the way that God has instructed them. They're responsible for serving their spouse in the way God has instructed them. So again, faithful obedience to God leads to happiness and fulfillment. That's what the Bible teaches, okay? And, and God does offer us happiness. Jesus said, you know, I came that your joy may be full. And my, you may have my joy and it be full. And, and we should seek that joy. And again, the Beatitudes, blessed, happy, fulfilled, is the person who... And then you remember all those, right? as character traits. So that's what the Bible teaches, however... And we touched on this in Sunday school. Worldly, fleshly, devilish thinking corrupts biblical truth. And I appreciated what Kevin was saying there, that those three are not separate, three separate bubbles, but they overlap. There's that impact. So while, yes, sometimes I might do something purely out of my flesh when I sin, it was at some point impacted by the world and the world's thinking and somehow indirectly impacted at least by Satan's deceptions, right? And so... What happens is they all want to corrupt biblical truth. And so what we do is we create expectations for others. And we create expectations even for God. We, we believe that if our expectations are met, that's when I'll be happy. And I can't be happy until they are met. And then we, we think if we're happy, then we can obey. But, and you've heard me say this before, something like this. Expectation is just a pretty name for demand. That's what it is. And I'm going to show you that as we walk through our lesson today. We seek to manipulate our spouse. We, in so many words and in our attitudes, say this. If you meet my expectations for you, then I'll be happy and then I'll be able to do my part. Do you hear that? Do you hear, hopefully, what's wrong about that? If you meet my expectations, honey, then I'll be happy, and then I'll be able to do my part. Or we seek to manipulate God. Have you ever thought something like this? Lord, if you do, if I do, if I do what you tell me, then you must reward me by making my spouse do what I expect. Now you may not have said it exactly like that but you probably thought that at some point if you're married and and think and those of you who are not married what about the relationships you have you know think about your parent your child your friend your church friend so called christian books encourage this and that's why I want to take some time to talk about this in 1989 a man named a uh, pastor named Emerson Eggerich started Love and Respect Conferences, which evolved into a very popular book. And listen to the title, Love and Respect, The Love She Most Desires, talking about the wife, The Respect He Desperately Needs. Okay, now, I'm not doing this just to pick on somebody, and it's possible that you read the book and maybe you liked it, or maybe you've even, you know, recommended the book. I've recommended books, you know, back in the early days of my ministry, just just because certain seminary put out those books, they must be good. I recommended them, and then later on, I read them and read them in light of the Word, and I'm like, Ew. you know, I feel sorry for those people I recommended the book to. But, but we all have to constantly be looking at the things and that we're reading, the things we're recommending, and saying, you know, is is this what the Bible is saying? Okay, and, and the reason we, we need. We need to think about this, because if they're getting it wrong, then we're actually misleading people in, or they're misleading people, and into not doing what the Bible says, and we're going to see that it's quite the opposite of what we find in verse 33, and also this is important for us, and the reason I want us to go through this is because it will it's a good exercise for us in thinking biblically. In being able to measure things, things that are popular, things that a lot of people are, are recommending. You may have heard a lot of people say, Oh, it's a wonderful book and recommend it, and and so we need to say, Okay, let's let's look at that. He uses Ephesians five thirty three, but is he using it correctly? So he claims to have discovered a revolutionary secret to a happy marriage and here in this verse, verse thirty three. Now he does take two words out of that verse love and respect but he completely misses the biblical teaching. And this is an important lesson for us. We need to learn how to not ourselves misuse scripture and how to see when others do. And so we have to do the hard work of understanding what is the scripture actually saying here. What is the scripture saying? Okay, and, and I'll share a part of this with you. There's there's a part of this lesson that was that was really hard. I was telling Connie about. It. It's like, you know, this one was thumping me. I mean, it's just coming coming to understand. I'll share that with you in, in a little bit. But it took a lot of work, and we have to be willing to do that kind of work to understand scripture rightly, because our souls depend on it, our marriages depend on it, and we want marriages to flourish and to, even more importantly, to reflect Christ's relationship with His church. So we can't just start with a worldly theory and then look for verses to support it. So many of the, the Christian self-help books, um, early in the early, like when I was working in Christian bookstores uh, when I was in college and seminary, There were a lot of books just flooding the market, self-help books. And almost without exception, they had taken something they lifted out of psychology, just secular psychology, and then looked for some verses that seemed to say that. Fortunately, biblical counseling also took off, and then uh, the publishing of those books uh, has been a wonderful help to the church to start seeing things biblically. But what Egerich does here, his approach is based on uh, humanistic needs-based ethics. Think Maslow here. Rather than biblical duty-based ethics. Okay, And I'll show you why that's a problem. Where you, you take needs-based ethics. The biblical perspective, as I showed from Jesus and, and John and James, is it's obedience. You, you obey God. If you want to be happy, you, you have to first obey Him. And it is in that obedience that you can be happy. And, and you think about the extreme. Can you be happy when you're suffering? Yes. Can you be happy when you're being burned at the stake? Yes. Now, are you like, wow, this feels great? No. Might you be crying, weeping, mourning? Yes. But can you be happy in the Lord? Yes. And that's what we're talking about. And how does that apply to marriage? Okay, well, I doubt that there's ever been a marriage where it's been just perfect from day one all the way to the end. Unless it maybe only lasted a day, you know. (laughs) The Lord took them home right after the wedding, you know. Um, Marriages are hard. And if you doubt me, ask somebody who's been married for more than, you know, 10 minutes. It's hard. And we don't do it well a lot of the time. And and that's really an understatement, right? And so, can you be happy when your spouse is not doing what God has told them to do? When they're not being a godly spouse? Can you be happy? Yes. You can. So, Eckert's book, the premise is stated on the back cover. He says, a wife has one driving need to feel loved. Hopefully, you're starting to see like, hmm, problem. He says, when that need is met, she is happy. A husband has one driving need to feel respected. When that need is met, he is happy. The problem, a problem with that, is our humanistic thinking goes like this, as sinners. I have a need. This is a need to be, for her, loved, for him, be respected. It's a need. Okay? If I have a need, then that is a right that I have. And if I have a right... Then I, have a, then I can make demands for it. Or we dress it up and call it expectations. And, and what happens is that ends up indulging our selfish desires. It's about what I want. And we call it a need, but it's about wants. It's not about doing what God tells us to do. And that's why we, we need to talk about this. And a key problem here, and this is not just with this book. I mean, there's a, a lot we could talk about, but and not just about marriage. But biblical responsibilities get twisted into needs. Biblical responsibilities get twisted into needs. Verse 33, you won't find the word need. You don't find... She needs to be loved, he needs to be respected. Now certainly they want that, that's fine, but it doesn't say those are needs. Egrich says that he discovered that couples experience what he calls the crazy cycle. And as far as a cycle, he's right about this. He says, with it being a cycle, he says, Without love, she reacts without respect. Without respect, he reacts without love ad nauseum, so it goes on and on. But you see, what he's doing is he's saying it's the other person's fault. You see, I don't love my wife because she doesn't respect me. And she doesn't respect me because I don't love her. Okay, and he's talking about how there's that that kind of crazy cycle. And and it is a crazy cycle. It's right about that part. But But notice how he ends up promoting another desperate cycle, another hopeless, futile cycle. He says, when a husband receives unconditional respect from his wife, those fond feelings of affection will return. Really? I haven't found that. And he will start giving her, really, the kind of love she has always hoped to receive. It doesn't happen. I mean, it might happen right during those conferences, and then maybe for, you know, a few days after. But there are a lot of people out there who testified that, yeah, and it fell apart and it got worse. Because it's not based on Scripture. You see, while quid pro quo marriage might sound good, your happiness is a slave to your spouse's performance. Do you, do you see that? Do you hear that? If I can only be happy if my wife does what she's supposed to do, my happiness is a slave to to her performance, and vice versa, you see. It's the same way in all of our relationships. If you say, I can only be happy if my friend does this, okay, your friend now is the master over your happiness. And what happens is this soon crumbles, couples are more hopeless than ever, and they become casualties of spiritual warfare, because at least... As we talked about just a minute ago with spiritual warfare, indirectly, this has been the deception of Satan, the deception of the world, influencing how we think. And we, we end up thinking in very fleshly ways. <clears throat> and Satan is a master at twisting Scripture and turning God's ways upside down. Think about what he tried to do with Jesus when he tempted Him. He used the Word of God, but he used it really badly. Puritan William Gurnall explained in his book on spiritual warfare that the devil's method is basically to to turn God's way upside down and to get us to believe that which is not actually true. To get us to believe what's not actually true. And so right-side-up thinking is this, and quoting Gurnall now, he says, it is not knowing another's duty. In other words, it's not me worrying about what my wife is doing wrong. And knowing what her duty is supposed to be. Nor the censuring of the negligence of another. Okay, because she won't do what God told her to do, I can't be happy. It's not that at all, he says. But here's what it is. But doing our own duty that will bring us safely and comfortably to our journeys end. So it's doing our own duty. And that's what the Scriptures teach. I need to be focusing on what God has called me to do. I don't need to be worried about in the sense of obsessed with if my wife isn't doing what she's supposed to do. And she can't be obsessed with me not doing what I'm supposed to do. She has to worry about what God has called her to do. I need to worry about what God has called me to do. It doesn't mean we can't help each other. But there's a difference with being obsessed with and saying, I can't be happy unless you do what God told you to do which actually degenerates into what I expect you to do. There's a big difference between that and saying, well, you know, in our oneness, we should help each other with our sins. But you see, we can do that gently and lovingly. You know, we can go to the other person and we can say, because I'm not sitting here like, oh, I'm not going to be happy until you get it right. Instead... I can say, oh, "Honey, I see this area of, of sin in your life, or that you know Jesus said to do this, Paul said to do this, and that's not what I'm seeing." And it does cause some conflict, but you see, what I'm, I'm kind of able to to step back and and not tie my happiness to whether or not she does it. You see. Because I have to be willing to say, if she says, well, you're all wet, and I'm not going to do that. I I can't then just lose it and say, okay, well, then I'm never going to be happy. That would be unbiblical. That would be ungodly. I should say, okay, well, I'll be praying for you. And I should go to the Lord and say, Lord, I want you, or please help me to still love my wife, even though she might not be doing, you know, what you called her to do. I want to find my happiness in you. My happiness is in obeying you, in doing what you said. That is far more healthy because it is biblical. Speaking biblically, a husband's love for his wife is not conditional. I mean, did you find that? When we went through Ephesians 5, 25, through this, did you find anything in there? Husbands, love your wives if they respect you. I mean, you were looking for it, right, guys? But it's not there. A husband must not expect his wife to respect him before he will love her. And a wife's respecting her husband is not conditioned on whether he loves her. Ladies, you didn't see that either, did you? Even though you might have looked for it. Wives, submit to your husbands if they love you. You didn't see that, did you? Those are their duties before God. And so we must return to Scripture truth. Find happiness and fulfillment in faithful obedience. If you choose to find your happiness in you faithfully obeying God, then nobody can take that from you. Nobody else is master of your happiness. Does that make sense that you're tracking with me here? Now, is this great to hear? And you're like, yeah, all right. And, well, no, you didn't really want to hear this, did you? And I didn't. But this is scripture truth. But it's a wonderful thing. I mean, wouldn't you love to be able to have a happiness that doesn't... You don't lose it even if the boat starts rocking? A happiness that if the people around you are sinners and behave like sinners and you still have happiness, don't you want that kind of happiness? Isn't that what you really, I mean, wouldn't that be wonderful? It's like everybody around me, man, they're just all losing it and they're all behaving like sinners. But I'm happy in Jesus. Why? Because I'm being faithful to Him. I'm in control of that. By His grace, I'm in control of that. That's me. It's just me. They're not in control of my happiness. That's the biblical model. So, each of us, each of you, me, focus on your own duty before God. And think about what we've already seen. This lines up with earlier in Ephesians 5. Um, We talked about uh, verse 14. Christ will shine on you. When will He shine on you? He says verse 15, Therefore be careful how you walk. Obedience. Right? And and if that doesn't settle it for you, back up a little bit to verse 10. Trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. Obedience. What is it that pleases the Lord? That's what I need to be focusing on. I need to focus on me being pleasing to the Lord. Obeying Him faithfully. Because... I can do something about that. I can't do something about the people around me. So let's look again at the passage here. I want to back up to verse 21 and read through verse 33. Ephesians 5, beginning in verse 21. Here, talking about walking in wisdom, being filled by the Spirit. And then he says, "...and submitting to one another in the fear of Christ." Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord." For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and he gave himself up for her. They might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. They might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot, or wrinkle, or any such thing, but that she should be holy and blameless. So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes or nurtures it and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. For this cause a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let each individual among you also love his own wife, even as himself, and let the wife see to it that she respect her husband. So, as we get now into the text, first, notice... Each married individual is responsible to obey God. Each married individual is responsible to obey God. And you see how this is now coming out. It's our responsibility, each of us individually. So what Paul's doing here at the start of it, when he starts with nevertheless, he's concluding his discussion, but he doesn't want the responsibilities of husbands and wives to get lost in that glorious teaching about Christ and the church. And so he says basically this, yes, Christ deeply loves His church, so also each individual among you is to be His responsible in marriage. So he's saying, yes, Christ is, you know, He, He deeply loves His church and there's that beautiful oneness between Christ and His church. But I don't want you to miss that this is also about husbands and wives in human marriage and how we are to live with one another. And so he says, nevertheless, and he reminds us, of our responsibility in marriage. And he switches here, interestingly, from talking in the plural to now in the singular here. You know, each individual, the man and the wife. Singular. Because he is drawing out here, he's emphasizing our individual responsibility before God. You see, that's where that's where the the emphasis is put. It's not on needs that that your spouse has to fulfill for you to be happy. It's on your responsibility. This is what you have to do as a believer in Jesus Christ. You husband, this is what you do. You wife, this is what you do. This is your responsibility before God. That is where you're to focus, not focus on supposed felt needs. But the singular here also points to the oneness between one man and one woman. Okay, that's what marriage is. That was Genesis 2, 24 that he quotes. And, and that it, it's one man, one woman. And here again, it is one and one. You see, in, in this, what they call, commentators call this the household code. Okay, a household code. That's where, like in Ephesians 3 and others, where you find uh, places where it talks about, okay, what, what is life like in the, in the household back then? And so you had husbands and wives. Okay, we've, we've, we're rounding out that study. And then you're going to have parents and children. We're going to see starting in one. And then in that day, you had servants or slaves who lived in the house or on the property, and they were always in the house working. So you had husband and wife as the masters, and then you had slaves. Well, in those other two sets of relationships, you would have a, a, a two parents, typically, and oftentimes more than one child. You see, so it was not a one-to-one. Same with the servants. He had husband and wife masters, and he had multiple servants. So again, not one-to-one. So he switches to the singular here. This, this, This relationship, the husband and wife relationship, the marriage relationship is like no other. Second, the husband must love his wife as himself. Again, verse 33. Nevertheless, let each individual among you, and here he's talking to the husbands. Remember, that's what we've been talking about since verse 25. Each individual among you is to also love his own wife even as himself. The verb love here is present tense. The husband's love is to be continuous, it's a continual love. It's not, it's like, well, okay, well, our first year I did pretty good at that, and I, I figure I'm, I'm good now. No, not at all. This is continuous all the way through your marriage. You are to love. He must love his wife the way that he loves himself by instinct. You see, what Paul talked about earlier, by instinct, every one of us, men and women, boys and girls, we... We know how to love ourselves. We already love ourselves. That just comes instinctually. Okay? We don't need to be taught that. We don't need to be commanded to do that. But godly love towards someone else, that doesn't come naturally to anybody other than God. So no human besides Jesus ever had that automatically. We have to to cultivate that kind of love for others, even within marriage. Husbands and wives have to do that. But husbands are given the, the role to lead in that, to, set, to, to take the initiative in that love and set the pattern of that kind of love in the home. We have to learn that. We have to form a habit over a lot of repetitions. And back to Egrich's book, he focuses on her wants. You go to the table of contents and you find she wants, she wants, she wants, she wants. And that's all positive from his perspective. But we've defined agape, agape love, as giving, sacrificing, and serving to meet real needs. I'll come back to that needs here in a second. Giving, sacrificing, serving. And men, we said earlier, we learned, love your wife by leading, sacrificing, serving, doing doing that faithfully and joyfully. Okay, so what about these needs? Okay, John, you said it wasn't about needs. It's not about felt needs. And it's still not needs-based. We, we look at these needs that God defines. So the wife doesn't get to define what her needs are. are a lot of books out there do that. You know, let her tell you what her needs are, and then that's how you do agape. No, not, not at all. You go and see, what does God say her needs are? And we saw already in, in this chapter, helping her deal with her sin. Now, a godly wife will say, yes, honey, I want you to help me with my sin until you actually help her to deal with her sin. Then it's not so much fun, right? And then she's kind of like, I don't think I really want you to do that, right? And, And we're all the same way, right? Helping her deal with sin, providing the resources for her spiritual development, for her to serve the Lord, for her to do her job. Of the things that God has called her to do, providing those resources—that's that nurturing and cherishing, that tender care we talked about, and protecting her from error. And you know, we're talking here. We're talking about books. It's not a well, honey. You can't read a book unless I've read it first. I don't. I, I, I'm not okay. I, that's not what I would advocate. But are you husband helping your wife develop discernment and so if you see that she you know is reading a book and you're kind of like, hmm subtitle on that kind of has me concerned what do you do ask her question so what are you what are you seeing in that is that lining up with scripture what is what is the author's point is that really biblically based and and talk talk about it help her develop discernment that's part of you protecting her from error So again, she doesn't define what the needs are, God does. And she doesn't get to demand those either. Because remember, it's about your responsibility, husband, before God. Okay, now the wife's Number three, the wife must dutifully respect her husband. The wife must dutifully respect her husband. Again, verse 33. Nevertheless, let each individual among you also love his own wife even as himself... And let the wife see to it that she respect her husband. So again, this is present tense, the verb. So it's continuous. Ladies, wives, you have to continually show respect to your husbands. Now, but literally, and some of you may have seen, noticed this, reading commentaries or whatever books. The word he uses there for respect is actually fear. Phobos, we get phobia from it. Okay, so he says, ladies, you are to fear your husband. Now, I I think respect is the the better word to convey what he's talking about here. The only problem with that is our English word respect can range from uh, showing honor and esteem to obedience. Okay, so we got that's that's a, quite a range. So which is it? We need to try to figure out what he actually means here. So in the New Testament, phobos fear, can be used for negative emotion, like being afraid of someone. That's terror fear. We talked about that a lot. Terror fear. Okay, that's one way it's used. It can also be used for a positive emotion, like reverential awe. Remember verse 21, that all of us are to be submitting to one another in the fear of Christ. So there's that reverential awe there. Or it could be used, like I think it is here, for respect. And let me suggest that what Paul has in mind here in verse 33 is the positive emotion, but not reverential awe referential Sorry, guys. But rather, and I word it this way, dutiful respect for her husband. It's dutiful respect. And what Egrich does here is he limits this idea of respect to just appreciation. Her appreciating her husband's desires or his wants. And that's as far as he goes with it as, as in defining it. Just appreciate, and that's in the table of contents. You know, wives learning to appreciate that he wants this, and he wants this, and he wants this. But it's just appreciation. So, let me show you how I got to dutiful respect, uh, and and this is what I was talking about earlier. This was hard, you know, because the commentaries they, they just said respect mostly. And so they weren't really, uh, how did you get there, and why do you say respect? And there's problems with the word respect, and is it saying enough, and that sort of thing. And, and there, they weren't a lot of help. And, you know, word studies were a little more help, uh, looking at the way the Greek word was used uh, throughout history, and the New Testament times in particular. Uh, but it was looking at Scripture, and this really should be the way it is, looking at Scripture is what helped. But it was a lot of work. And this is the kind of work that we need to be doing as we evaluate whether or not, as Paul said for the the Bereans, you know, they're searching the Scriptures to see if what he, even he was saying was so. And it's that kind of hard work we have to do. So how did I get there to dutiful respect? Because I don't think respect by itself is enough, because we could just mean honor, for example. So, first, it's more than honor. It, It includes honor. A wife should honor her husband, but Paul's saying more than that. For example, in 1 Peter 3, 7, which we'll get to in a couple weeks, Peter's going to tell the husband to show his wife honor. Okay, He's to show her honor as a fellow heir. So the husband is to show his wife honor, but that's the husband's response to his wife, not the wife's to her husband. Peter... There, for honor, use the Greek word teme. We get Timothy from that. uh, Teme plus theos. You know, the old theos." If you read like in King James. uh, One who honors God. Okay, so teme, honor. And that's the word. So Peter used a different word there. But Paul used the word for fear, phabos. Okay. So he means something different than what Peter was talking about as far as what husbands show their wives. Paul intends more than just honor. And, and we'll come back to that, but we also need to guard against the other extreme, though. Honor is too weak for, it, it's too mild for what he's saying wives ought to have toward their husbands. But it is not terror or fear. That's one of the uh, ways that the word phabos can be used for terror fear. You know, like, you know, you're hiking in the woods and a bear jumps out, okay? That's terror fear, right? And that's not what he's talking about here. We need to guard against that. Again, if we think about 1 Peter 3 and verse 2, Peter speaks positively of a godly woman's respectful behavior. And the word respectful, guess what word it is? Phabos. Her fearful behavior. Okay. Well, maybe he means that she needs to be terrified by her husband. Well, we we see from Sarah's example of calling Abraham Lord shows that it's more than just honor. But Peter goes on to say there in verse 6 of 1 Peter 3 that she should not be frightened, Phobos. Even though he said she sh- should have respectful behavior, fearful behavior, fabas behavior toward her husband. But not be Fabas frightened, by any fear. And so that's a different word that one for any fear. Uh, ptaasis. You know, harder one to say the beginning of the PT, right? But ptaasis. She should not have that. What does taasis mean? It means intimidation. Terror. Terror fear, right? So because Peter knowing that Fabas can mean terror fear, he adds ta-asis to taasis to that and says, Yes, she should have Fabas, but by Fabas I don't mean terror. I don't mean intimidation. I don't mean that she's frightened. Okay? And so what this does is this kind of gives us those you know, those bumper rails at the, you know, bowling alley. It keep us from going outside. It's, it's more than honor, but it's much less than terror fear. The husband should ensure that his wife is not intimidated by him or frightened by him. So Peter tells us. Okay, so I said it's more than honor and it's less than terror. What is it then? Well, that's where I add the word dutiful. Why do I do that? Again, First Peter. Respect toward her husband, he says, involves obedience. Uh, think about it. the husband is appointed to lead. We've seen that here in Ephesians 5. We see that in First Peter 3. Genesis 1 and 2, 2 in particular. Her husband is appointed to lead, so we have obedience there. But in 1 Peter 3 6, he tells the wife, You won't have terror if you do what is right. If you do what is right. What is that? Obedience. Right in the eyes of God, not the husband, as God defines it. You see, it's, it's obedience, and so that's why I add the term, the modifier, the adjective dutiful. Dutiful respect. Okay, so it's more than honor, but much less than terror. So, a wife must maintain dutiful respect for her husband. Well, as we think about where we're at in this section of walking in wisdom, which began in verse 15, as Avery read for us earlier. As we seek to walk in wisdom, depending on the power of the Holy Spirit, verse 18, submitting to one another, verse 21... We do all of that in the fear of Christ, husbands and wives. Sobered by the awe of Jesus' majesty, that's the fear of Christ. We're sobered by the awe of His majesty. When we are, the husband will love his wife sacrificially. He'll nurture her. He'll care tenderly for her. And when she is sobered by Jesus' majesty, the awe of it, she will behave toward her husband with dutiful respect. It's in these ways that our marriages are able to point people to Jesus. That's been our theme throughout this, right? Because throughout every part of it, Christ, 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 how he loved the church, how he died for her, all these things, it's all about Christ. And and what we saw last week is he said, well, that's really the, the ultimate point anyway, isn't it? He said, I'm talking about Christ in the church. It's all about that. So, that's why it's important that we get this right. Because it's only by carrying out our marriages as husbands and wives in the ways that Christ gives us through the apostles, through his word, that we can point to him. You see, when we're doing it in a worldly way, in a fleshly way, using worldly wisdom, we're not going to point people to Christ. We're going to point people to us. Oh, yeah, you know, we're so smart that we figured it out. And, and oh, we, we've got this marriage thing down. Nobody looks at Christ. But we can say, oh, I've fallen down many, many times. And we've fallen down together many times. We've blown it many times. But we keep working on trying to imitate the way Jesus loves His church and the way the church is supposed to follow Him, obey Him. And as your kids see that, and people around you see that, and they say, Wow, there's two sinners, and they sure fall down a lot. They love Jesus and they love each other. And I see that there are a lot of times where they're doing it the way Paul said to do it. How could two messed up people do that? Guess what? We point them to Christ. And mom and dad, you don't ever want to say, Oh, we've got it all figured out. No, point to Christ. As we come to the Lord's table, we want to focus on the deep love that Jesus has for His church. the, The joyful, reverential awe that we have for Him. As the church, our fear of Christ, it does include a dutiful respect toward Him, to humbly obey Him, but it is much more than that. The fear of Christ, remember, is joyful trembling, reverential awe at His majesty. And we've called that before worship fear. If, we're, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you, don't, you shouldn't have terror or fear toward Jesus. It should be worship fear. And that's we come to His table to worship Him now in the fear of Christ.